So today's Bible reading will be on Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 40, and that's page 30, uh, 378 on the Blue Bible. Gideon. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came out with their livestock and the tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or the camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out out of Egypt, out, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing weeds in a brine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of um, Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire fled from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. 
That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, and one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, Who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, Bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name of Jared Baal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiasrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and ran out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So... I know we've had a couple of elections this year, but when it came to choosing leaders for our state and our country, well, I don't know about you, but I didn't find the choices all that inspiring. And for all the under-18s, I saw your eyes glaze over. You didn't get to choose at all. So let's imagine that we get to try it again this morning. It's just us, Abbotsford, even the four-year-olds. We're picking the Prime Minister of Australia. And I think, well, I like to think, that I've assembled something of a better ballot paper for you. So, who will you choose? Here it is. Right. Will you choose a well-regarded leader in the role sometimes considered more important than Prime Minister? Australian Test Captain. Hang on. There we go. Tim Payne. Or perhaps loyal, innovative, perhaps the smartest student at Hogwarts. Hermione Granger. There we go. Uh, We have 
suave, sophisticated, a man with a killer instinct, James Bond. Or perhaps uh, a selfless survivor of more death matches than you have pair of sock, pairs of socks, the Hunger Games' Katniss Everdeen. Or finally, one for my kids at least, the irrepressible and ever-dependable Captain Barnacles. Could I get a show of hands? Are you willing? Who'd vote for Tim Payne? Okay, okay. What about, uh, what about Hermione? Good, good. Uh, James Bond? Ooh. Katniss Everdeen? Oh, yeah. And how about Captain Barnacles? Oh, I think we've got Captain Barnacles just by a whisker. Excellent. Now, here's what I really want to know. How did you make your choice? How did you choose Captain Barnacles as Prime Minister of Australia? <laughs> that sounds really funny now that I hear it said. <laughs> no. Look, did you pick the best person for the job? Did you pick the most qualified? He is irrepressible. Did you pick the strongest or the most influential? The person with the best, or the, the one, the choice with the best personality? The most attractive, even. Are those the qualities that you used when you were choosing who would get your number one vote on your ballot paper in the state or federal election? I know there's certainly some of the qualities I looked for. I, I tend to think of these as some of the most important qualities in a leader. And for the record, I chose Tim Payne. <laughs> but as we hear this morning's passage read to us from Judges 6, it strikes me that there's a massive difference in the way that God chooses leaders in his kingdom. We don't think of leaders the way that God thinks of leaders. Here on earth, in a democracy at least, we try and choose the strongest, the most effective people to be our leaders. But who does God choose to lead in his kingdom? Who does God choose to lead? In our passage this morning, I want you to see that God chooses someone unexpected. And there's three points that I want to make about this leader and all Christian leaders this morning. God chooses the weak to lead. God persists with cowardly leaders. And God shows grace to the faithless leader. So those are the three points that I'd like to speak on this morning. But first, we need to get ourselves into the world of Judges 6. So come on a journey with me. We're, uh, we're in the promised land, the promised land of Israel. It's been about 200 years since Joshua led the Israelites in. There's been some struggles, but for the last 40 years, there's been a wonderful peace in this land flowing with milk and honey. But in the 40 years of peace, the Israelites have all gone their own way. Verse 1 there. They've done evil in their own eyes, uh, in God's eyes rather. So just as he's done a number of times before in the book of Judges, God disciplines Israel. He disciplines them by reminding them that on their own, they cannot stand up to the nations around them. And it's pretty bad. The milk and the honey aren't flowing so freely anymore. The promised land is being invaded. Each year after the Israelites plant their food, the Midianites and other enemies of Israel from around them, they sweep through and destroy the crops, 
leaving them no, no grain in the field, no grapes in the vineyards, nothing. And the Israelites are such a rabble that they don't even put up a fight. They just retreat to the hills. Their harvest is gone, there's nothing to eat, they're hungry. But they can't return home for fear of being caught. So you see in verse 2, they just end up cowering in caves and eating whatever plants and mountain animals they can get their hands on. The Israelites are in desperate need of a leader. So of course, in verse 6, they cry out to God. Like you would as a teenager when you run out of money and you've suddenly got to talk to your way uncool parents again. Or as a a political leader tends to do when election time comes around and they remember that they have voters. The Israelites were in desperate need of a leader. They had drifted far from God. They were happy in their independence. But now something has gone wrong. So it's in this context that that we find ourselves waiting to see who God will choose to lead Israel out of their worst rebellion and their harshest discipline since arriving in the Promised Land. Who does God choose to lead? Well, the quick answer as you've already probably gathered from verse 11 there, is a man named Gideon. So what's he like? Let's get into our first point. God chooses the weak. Now, straight up, you might be thinking that it's a bit strange I would call Gideon weak when the first description we hear of him there in verse 12 is as a mighty warrior. The angel of the Lord calls him a mighty warrior. But it would seem that angels can be every bit as ironic or sarcastic as people. Gideon's no mighty warrior. We can tell this because when the angel appears, we find Gideon threshing wheat, whatever wheat it might have been that the Midianites left for him, we find him threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, I hear you asking, how does that make Gideon weak? In fact, I hear most of you asking, what does that even mean? Well, In those days, wheat would normally be threshed in a large, flat, exposed area called the threshing floor, which would be near the village or near the villages, and it would be exposed like that so that the wind could blow through and blow away all the scraps. Threshing is where you take the edible part of the grain and separate it from the stalk and all the other bits that you don't want to eat. But a wine press is a much smaller space It's generally hidden in the shade under trees alongside a vineyard so that when the the people are threshing their grapes, or sorry, threshing, pressing their grapes to make wine, it's not getting spoilt by the sun. A wine press is no place to thresh wheat. It's like trying to play cricket in the middle of a forest. There's just not the space for it. But out of fear, that's where we find Gideon. And that's not the only reason I call Gideon weak. Read with me from verses 13 to 16. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you 
and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, you can see there that Gideon's certainly taking his opportunity to ask questions, isn't he? He doesn't seem real keen. But to his weakness, you can see there in verse 15 that Gideon is the least in his family, as Daryl said before. And Manasseh, uh, and, sorry, and his family is the weakest clan in Manasseh, which is not, by any means, one of the more prominent tribes of Israel. In Israel, though, <clears throat> family is strength. And that's still true today. You know how the saying goes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Now, I'm from Tasmania, and in Tasmania, over a, or almost a quarter of our politicians are related to current or former politicians. Perhaps what they say about Tasmanians might be a little bit true. <laughs> but you can certainly see that Gideon has no such lineage to fall back on. He's a nobody. And with this in mind, if Gideon were on the ballot paper that I put up on screen earlier, would you choose to vote for him? He was a nobody. He was weak. He was cowering from his enemies. I wouldn't vote for him. If Gideon was up for election, his posters would be blank and his flyers would say, don't vote for me. That's basically what he's asking God to do. And yet, and yet we see in verse 14 and 16 that God is offering his strength to Gideon. We would be entirely right to consider Gideon weak. But God has looked at Gideon's election flyer, the big billboard that I had up there before, and said, that's okay, he'll be fine. I'll be there to show him what to do. And we get an understanding of why God would do this in 1 Corinthians, the, the verse that Daryl read before, um, where Paul writes this, he writes, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So there's some important stuff that we need to understand here. You can see God chooses the weak to lead in his kingdom. He can work through whoever he likes. And while Gideon might have started out as the weakest of judges, God made him to be one of the mightiest. Now, when I talk about leaders in God's kingdom this morning too, I want to be really clear about who I mean. We are all leaders in God's kingdom. It's not just Daryl and PM when they get up the front here. From leading a friend to know Jesus to leading kids' church or standing up the front here, one day you too will be asked to step up in God's kingdom. God calls us all to lead in some way. So when the time comes, please remember that it's not because of anything that you have to offer. You might have wonderful skills that you're busting to use in God's service, or you might feel that you've got nothing to offer at all. But God builds his kingdom his way, and it's not our job to tell him how he should do it. 
We can see in Gideon's calling that God could just as easily have done the job himself. He would have saved himself the effort of having to convince Gideon to do it. Instead, he is chosen to use Gideon. And for Gideon, as for us, we must remember that it's a privilege to experience God at work through us. But that's not the only way I'd like you to look at this this morning. Because some of you might have been serving in God's kingdom for years. You might put your hand up for every roster here at Abbotsford. You lead at K-Central. K-Central day is every term they come up. K-Central week. You give more than 10% in the offering. But in your darker moments, if the thought ever creeps in that the church needs you more than you need the church, then you need to repent. Gideon's calling proves to us that there is nothing, humanly speaking, that we need to bring to God. Gideon certainly appeared to have the more prominent tribes of Israel. Oh, sorry. Gideon certainly appeared to have nothing to offer. But see verses 17 and 18. He humbly accepted that God had chosen him. He offered a sacrifice to the angel who had told him all this. And verse 22, he got to see the face of God and he did not die. Gideon accepted that God had chosen him and he got to see the face of God. God chooses the weak to lead. Now let's move to my second point. God persists with the cowardly. So Gideon's just seen the face of the Lord. He's accepted that even though he has nothing to offer, God will use him. God has called him to lead Israel indeed. But now in verse 25, God sets him on his first mission as a leader. And he sends him out to tear down his father's idols, his altar to Baal and his Asherah pole. We read how Gideon responds to this in verse 27. Read with me. Now Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So God's given Gideon this mission, his first mission as leader of Israel. And what does he do? He cops out. Gideon cops out. Am I not sending you? God says in verse 14. I will be with you, he says in verse 16. Oh, but God, replies Gideon, I'm scared. I can't do this on my own. What if people see me? They'll threaten me. They'll kill me. Gideon's first act as judge was his most cowardly. He has seen the face of God, and yet this is how he responds. He's seen God's angel burn up an offering with just the tip of his staff. But rather than embracing the strength that God has given him, Gideon skulks off to destroy Baal's altar under the cover of darkness. And not content with God's presence and strength, Gideon brings ten of his servants to help. But it gets worse. When the townspeople find out their gods have been destroyed in verse 29, Gideon hides away and lets his pagan father defend him. Gideon lets the man who built this altar to Baal and Asherah pole defend him. What a mess. But it is easy to judge. I stand here and say all this, but if I'm honest, 
I don't know that I'd have done any better than Gideon. Would you? The situation would have been terrifying. But this is the situation that Christian leaders face every day. Because Christian leaders are God's representative in a world that doesn't want to know. You and I are God's representatives in a world that doesn't want to know. In a world like Israel that does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Our society, like Israel, has had peace for a very long time. And it's gone its own way. As Christians, we are called to tell people, to let people know that they are sinners in need of salvation from God. We are called to call others to repentance. But we live in a country where, by and large, most people think they're good enough. She's a good lass. He's a good bloke. She'll be right, mate. Who are you calling a sinner? So we cop out. I know I've certainly copped out on sharing the gospel time and again because it might be awkward or uncomfortable or it's not the right time. But the thing to remember is that in the face of this, in the face of our cowardice, God persists. We might feel afraid, we might feel ill-equipped, but we don't see God give up on this stage, uh, on Gideon at this stage, do we? God doesn't let him fail. The idols are torn down and he lives to fight another day. Despite his cowardice, Gideon is still God's chosen leader. And neither do we see God give up on the church or its leaders today. The strength God has given, her, given Gideon, he gives us too. See the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And what does he say to Gideon in verse 16? I will be with you. To us, I am with you. God continues to work in us, no matter how small our role in his kingdom, so that he might bring about his plan and show his glory to all the world, so that others might know their need for God to be saved. God calls the weak to lead. God persists with the cowardly. And we're coming to a close now. My last point. God shows grace to the faithless. And it's understandable. It's understandable that Gideon might be lacking faith even after all of this. Because as we come to verse 33, once again Israel's enemies have gathered to fight. But this time Gideon started to get the idea. God is with him. And this time, as the Midianites and their allies prepare to pillage the land once more, Gideon doesn't cower in the hills. The Spirit of God is on him, and he gathers together an army. So far, so good. But he's still reluctant. He still has doubts. Let's read that famous passage of Gideon and his fleece from verses 36 to 40. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hands, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool, th- a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. 
Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered in dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, on the face of it, you might think Gideon has no reason to ask for a sign. Not only has God shown his face to Gideon, but Gideon, we know from verse 13, he knew the story of the Exodus. He knew God had delivered his people from a great nation, a great army, a mighty foe before. He knew God could. I want to be clear here. It's not good, this thing that Gideon is doing. Testing the Lord is not how we should seek guidance. This is a faithless testing of God, the kind that Jesus spoke about when he was tested himself in the wilderness. But it would be wrong to accuse Gideon of having learned nothing either. He has assembled an army, trusting in God's strength to go out and battle the Midianites after all. Instead, I can't help but think of the man in Mark's Gospel who prays, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Gideon is faced with another challenge in his leadership, and this time, rather than turning to his servants, he turns to God. Though his faith might be just as small as a little mustard seed, it's starting to grow. And again, God, our God, responds in the most gracious manner. He answers Gideon, not once, but twice. So you can see, Gideon's far from perfect here. But we don't need to be perfect in God's kingdom. We don't even need to be perfect to serve or lead in God's kingdom. We just need to trust wholly in his strength. We need to trust wholly that his strength is enough for us. You see, we find God's glory most strongly in Gideon because he has so little of himself to give. Gideon's success or failure was never about how strong his faith was. It was never about how strong he was as a man. Gideon's success or failure was always about God achieving his plan for Israel and showing his glory to the world. Now look, I'm sorry this morning if this feels like a bit of a character assassination on one of the Bible's great men. Gideon's listed in the, the, um, the Hall of Faith, no, the Hall of Fame for Faith in Hebrews. But please understand that it's not. We just have to recognise that God does not choose his leaders in his kingdom the way that we do in ours. We choose the most powerful, the most capable. God chooses the least expected people to achieve his plan so that we can see his glory, not our own. For remember, from that passage again in 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And so it is that just like Gideon, some 1,200 years later, we find the story of another leader's rise that follows the pattern. Seemingly the son of an insignificant carpenter who grew up in a town that was the butt of jokes. Born out of wedlock, forced to flee with his parents for fear of death, mocked, 
ridiculed, shamed, and ultimately killed on an instrument of the most horrendous torture, a death that he did not deserve to die. But unlike Gideon, Jesus, the Son of God, was never a coward. He never, ever lacked faith. He is the only man to have ever lived a perfect life before God, ever to have had anything to offer at all. And Jesus, he died on the cross bearing the weight of our sin, the weight of the evil that, like in Israel more than 3,000 years ago, separates us from God. And he rose to life again. He rose to life again because he is God. The pain of evil cannot hold him down. He is the mighty warrior. God may have called Gideon mighty warrior and given him that strength to lead, but Jesus is the mighty warrior who can defeat death and defeat death for us. And he took the punishment for our rebellion against God. Because just like Gideon, we have nothing to offer God. It's not just that God graciously chooses us to lead in his kingdom in whatever small way. It's that he would choose to know us at all when all we deserve is eternal separation from our creator. So when considering leaders in God's kingdom, you and I, even the best and the brightest, please remember this, we are not strong. We are weak. God is strong. We can be cowardly, but God persists. We lack faith. But our God shows us incredible grace. The leaders I had you vote on at the beginning, the qualities that we think might make them great for leadership, those qualities mean nothing in God's kingdom. When God calls you to lead, step up. It's not because of your strengths, but neither is, it, neither is God's power limited by your weakness cowardness or lacking faith trust in him because he chooses to show his wonderful power by leading through weak cowardly faithless people just like you and I please pray with me Lord we do feel so small before you when we think of your greatness and your power And when we consider how little we have to offer you. Lord, we are reminded again of how far from you we are when we see in Gideon's actions the same weakness, cowardness and faithlessness that we so often find in our own. And yet, God, you have offered us such a wonderful gift in Christ. You have so freely brought us into relationship with yourself even when all we have done all our lives is run from you and disappoint you and rebel against you. God, we thank you for your grace and we pray humbly this morning that you might once again forgive us and restore us to you and please give us the power Please give us the might, please give us the strength that comes not from ourselves but from you to share this wonderful blessing that you've given us with those around us. Lord, we pray that many might come to know you, that many might come to put their trust in you and we ask humbly that you would use us for that purpose. Please help us to look past our own fear, our own anxiety 
and please help us to lean on your strength. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.